Our sermon text this evening is Psalm chapter 3, but I'd encourage you to, uh, if you already have your Bible opened up to Psalm 3, put your thumb in it, uh, and turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 15, as we have some important background reading to understand the context for why David had penned this particular psalm. You'll see, when we turn to Psalm 3, that the occasion for this writing is for when David fled from his son Absalom. So for us to understand what it is that David is praying, we need to understand these circumstances. I'd encourage you this week to read 2 Samuel 15 and 16 in its entirety. We will not read these two chapters in its entirety, but we will read various portions as we work our way through it to understand again this, the occasion for the psalm before us this evening. 2 Samuel chapter 15. Speaking of Absalom, again, one of David's uh, eight or nine sons. Um, here, the most important uh, son, at least for a time. After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom used to rise early and stand by the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, from what city are you? He would say, your servant is of such and such, a tribe in Israel. And Absalom would say to him, see, your claims are good and right, but there's no man designated by the king to hear you. Notice what Absalom's doing here. He's standing in the courts going, ah, look at the failure of the king, his own father. Then Absalom would say, oh, that I were judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me. And I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand to take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. And so Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. At the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, Please let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while I lived at Geshur in Aram, saying, If the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. The king said to him, Go in peace. And so Absalom arose and went to Hebron. And Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. With Absalom went 200 men from Jerusalem who were, invited, who were invited guests. And they went in their innocence. They knew nothing. And while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel, the Gilonite, David's counselor from the city of Gila. And the conspiracy grew strong. And the people with Absalom kept increasing. The messenger came to David, saying, The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. And David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise, let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go down quickly, lest he overtake us quickly, and bring down ruin upon us, and strike the city with the edge of the sword. Now skipping down to verse 30. As they make preparations to flee, as there is a clear overthrow of the government a conspiracy transpiring. Verse 30, but David went up, 
the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up weeping as they went. And it was told David that Ahithophel, David's counselor, is among conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. Now skipping down to chapter 16, verse 5. When King David came to Baharim, there came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera, and he had came, he came out and he cursed continually. He threw stones at David, and at all the servants of King David, and all the people, and all the mighty men were on his right hand and his left, and Shimei said as he cursed, get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged upon you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned, and the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is upon you, for you are a man of blood. Then Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and take off his head. But the king said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah? If he is cursing because the Lord has said to him, curse David, who then shall say, why have you done so? David said to Abishai and to all of his servants, behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjaminite leave him alone and let him curse for the Lord has told him so. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. So David and his men went on the road, while Shimei went along the hillside opposite him, and cursed as he went, and threw stones at him, and flung dust. And the king and all the people who were with him arrived weary at the Jordan, and there he refreshed himself. Now turning with me to Psalm chapter 3. This is the first psalm that we have in the Psalter that has a superscription. Uh, writing at the, the top, at the beginning of the psalm that provides the occasion. And here, we are told that this is a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. So given that context that we just read, let's give our attention to Psalm 3. David speaking under inspiration of the Spirit, O Lord, how many are my foes! Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I awoke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all of my enemies on the cheek, and you break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. May your blessing be upon your people. Where is David's salvation? I think it's one thing to reckon with the problems that we face outside of the church. As we reckon, as we consider our own circumstances within uh, this nation, within the broader cultural context. 
to try to pin the blame on the, the problems that we face on uh, the state, the federal government, a rival religion, or even perhaps a rival political party as the source of the church's woes. What do you do when the threat comes within one's own ranks? What do we do when the biggest threat becomes the traitor in the midst? It's the very problem that Jesus faced with Judas. And it's the problem we see here that David faces with his own son, Absalom. We see here again, the superscript gives the occasion for why this psalm was written. Here, David's son, Absalom, has taken the throne from him. And now David is driven into the wilderness. In an event that has happened so quickly that even some of David's closest friends have turned against him. And now David's foes, these traitors in the midst, mock him and they say, there is no salvation to be found for you. So where is David's deliverance to be found? So consider the psalm, we'll take it in three distinct parts. First, we'll consider David's many foes. You'll see that here in verses 1 and 2. And you'll notice that our breakup of the psalm is followed by those arresting marks that we find in three distinct portions of this particular psalm, that, that phrase, Selah. Don't really know what it means, but it seems to be some uh, type of technical term, some type of technical musical term. Uh, that brings something, uh, an end to a particular refrain or verse or something along those lines. So we'll, we'll use that as our dividing mark this evening. So verses 1 and 2, we'll consider David's many foes. Secondly, we'll consider David's loud supplication in verses 3 and 4. And finally, verses 5 to 8, we'll consider David's secure salvation. So his many foes, his loud supplication, and his secure salvation. Well, as we've seen, 2 Samuel gives us the context for this psalm. Absalom, Absalom has betrayed his dear father and has claimed the kingdom as his own. In many ways, as you read through 2 Samuel, you find that uh, the Scripture itself compares Absalom to Saul, quite intentionally. Here is a man of strength and beauty. Here is a man who is well-loved by the people for all his external features. Here's a man who has head and shoulders above the, the rest. Here's a man who has kind of beautiful, long, flowing hair. This is kind of the, this, this kind of male supermodel type uh, king waiting in the wings. And even as you read your way through 2 Samuel, you'll find that at points you find yourself quite sympathetic to Absalom and what it is that he's doing. In the chapters leading up to what we read a few moments ago, we find that David has murdered, raped, and even covered up his own sin for a particular time with the dreaded Bathsheba incident. He's gotten a whole army guard to gra grab a woman and to bring her before him. And then he has her own husband killed. And he tries to cover up the pregnancy. Here's a man of pride who has taken census of a nation and has incurred God's wrath. And in fact, if you begin to read David's actions following the incident with Bathsheba, you find that what we have is an impotent ruler. David's a man of wisdom all the way leading up to the Bathsheba incident. But from that point forward, he can't seem to make up his mind on what to do. The most famous incident, of course, is that when his own, one of his other sons, Abnon, 
rapes one of David's daughters, Amnon's own sister. David knows about it and does nothing. But Absalom does something. And Absalom conspires to defend the right of his own sister who has been violated. Who wouldn't want to feel some sort of sympathy for Absalom? And all the good he's doing is David seems to be doing nothing. We even see in the beginning of chapter 15 of 2 Samuel that Absalom is going out into the city gates where the king should be, and he is actually trying to perform justice. And yet at the same time, Absalom is doing this in a pointed and concerted effort to claim the throne as his own and overthrow his own father. It's a four-year conspiracy in the making. For four years, every day, Absalom goes out and says, ah, where's the king? I guess he's not to be found today. Here, let me give you wisdom. Here, let me treat you with dignity and respect. Oh, I really wish the king would appoint me as a judge in the land. After four years of the whispers and the plotting, Absalom makes his move. The people love Absalom. In fact, the language that you saw that we, that we heard earlier, Absalom has actually stolen the heart of the people. And yet David does nothing. Even as he takes the throne for himself. Part of the implication we find is there doesn't seem to be any justice in the land. That the, the, the true king of Israel hasn't really been doing his particular job. Here is a kingdom in chaos. And then finally, Absalom strikes. He deals with the power vacuum, so to speak, even though his father still sits on the throne and he claims the throne for himself. He tells his father, I'm going out uh, on a pilgrimage. He covers up his conspiracy with religious lingo and says, I'll be back in a little while. And then he sends out spies and says, when you hear the trumpet blast, it's time for my supporters to come and we will invade Jerusalem. We will march in and take the city as our own. So that when it finally happens, David is totally kept, uh, uh, is totally um, surprised by what happens. He's been oblivious this entire time to this conspiracy. And yet, despite our own personal sympathies, one may have for part of Absalom's actions, there is still the really uh, um, the pertinent information that we've all already been given. Absalom is not to be the new king of Israel. It has already been prophesied to David through Nathan that Solomon is to be king and not Absalom. So Absalom is a phony contender to the throne. No matter how right his claim to the throne may be by blood, he has not been the man appointed by the Lord to be the new king of Israel. Here we have a mutiny. This is not a presidential election. This is not a peaceful transition of power. This is an overthrow of a king by his own son. So when David says here in Psalm 3, how many are my foes, I want us to really feel the weight of his statement here. He's not speaking of the Philistines. He's not speaking of Goliath or that Anakim. He's not speaking of the Amorites. He's speaking of his own blood and kin. 
and the bulk of the nation under his rule. Traitors. It's a massive betrayal. If you read all of 2 Samuel 15 and 16, it seems that the bulk of David's supporters, even in the midst of David's own exile, are not Israelites. It's actually Gentiles who are supporting David in his time of exile. Can you imagine the betrayal? The psychological impact that compounds the threat. This is not simply how many are you know, the members of ISIS that have risen up against me. How many are the commies from the, Soviet, the old Soviet Union that have risen up against me? It's how many are my foes and they have been led by my own son, my neighbor, my friend, my closest advisor. I sat on the pew next to you in worship, David is essentially saying. How many? Three times he gives that phrase. How many here in these opening verses? How many are my foes? How many are they rising up against me? This is not simply him recounting past experience. This is his present plight. They have surrounded me and they say God will not save. Remember Shimei. This has all happened because of your sin. You have brought blood on your own household. This is certainly your fault. Notice that this is not a pagan nation. This is not a nation that has adopted pagan worship. They have not begun worshiping other gods. They still claim to worship the same God, but they have rejected the Lord's true anointed. They have rejected David, and they have rejected Solomon, his son, and they think they are in the right, and so therefore the Lord will not save David. They keep pointing David back to his prior sins, going, you have done these sins, they're not lying. And they say, because of these sins, you have no right to sit on the throne. They have taken the authority to themselves to remove a man from office that the Lord has already put in place. Here stands David, dethroned and forsaken. Here's a king in exile living in the wilderness, and his foes rise up against him, even from within his own household. And it appears from the very get-go that Absalom has won. He has taken the throne. He bears David's last name, as it were. He has stolen the heart of the people. The people want him to be king. He has the army. He has the counselors. You read at the end of 2 Samuel 16, Absalom has even taken David's ten concubines and claimed them as his own. Even some of David's closest friends have joined Absalom's ranks. Like Christ on the cross, they begin to jeer. Is there no salvation to be found? Save yourself. You claim to be the anointed king, deliver yourself. Despite the jeers, despite even David's own sin, which I remind you has been forgiven by the Lord. Even though the Lord said you will bear the consequence with a kingdom in chaos throughout the rest of your life. David recognizes this. And yet David displays a robust confidence in the promises of God. Because God had not told David that he would be removed from the throne, only that he would suffer trouble while he is on the throne. David still clings to the promise that he is to receive an unshakable kingdom. A kingdom that perhaps may be in tatters, 
but a kingdom that certainly will not totter. And so we find David's robust confidence in verses 3 and 4. Here David cries out to the Lord. This is not just a soft prayer. He cries aloud. And now he evokes three particular images of the Lord on his behalf as his shield, his glory, and the lifter of his head. Verse 3, it says, you, O Lord, are a shield about me. It's a good translation. The preposition there, more woodenly, you are a shield behind me. In other words, here's David, here's a man on the run. And yet the Lord has promised to be David's rear guard. That he will not allow David to be shot in the back. Even as he is on the run. Even as he is in retreat. Now David begins to look like Israel in the wilderness. Just as Israel went through the wilderness, so now David. David now proclaims the Lord to be his son and his shield going before him, standing guard before him. Perhaps this is a momentary loss and David admits, as we saw in 2 Samuel, that perhaps this is justly due him for his own sinful behavior. This might be an incident of the Lord disciplining David. But David also knows that the Lord has not abandoned him. And so David says, not only are you my shield, but you are my glory. Again, evoking that image that we have of Israel in the wilderness where the fiery presence of the Lord, the glory of the Lord, covered Israel by day and night, forming a front shield and a rear guard against Israel's enemies so that they would not be overrun by Pharaoh's army. That the glory resides with David, even though David does not sit atop Mount Zion anymore. The glory is in the midst of David and his company in flight. David has been exiled from Mount Zion. The ark remains in Jerusalem. And when you read 2 Samuel 15 and 16, you'll find that some of David's uh, uh, friends who stick with him say, hey, let's grab the ark as we make our way out the door. Let's bring the ark with us. And David's response is very clearly, no, 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 the Lord's dwelling place is in Jerusalem, not with us. Leave the ark where it is. And yet, despite appearances, though the ark remains with Absalom, the Lord does not. The Lord does not dwell with Absalom and Zion. The glory has, in fact, departed. There's a book that came out three or four years ago, by that title, The Glorious Departed, speaks of the, um, the, the, the members of the Church of Scotland who had to, they were driven out of the denomination over the denomination's stance of uh, homosexual relations. And the story gives the history of those ministers now in exile with the great hope that though they no longer inhabit the beautiful Scottish churches, there is the hope that the pro- of the promise that the Lord dwells with them because they have sought to remain faithful to the Word of God. David is now in exile. David may feel far from God. He is now cut off from the place of worship. But the fact remains that the Lord has not abandoned David. And so David now invokes this third image that the Lord is the one who lifts up his head. Think of... What does it mean to have your head 
crestfallen. It's a sign of one who is in shame. A sign of one who has been defeated, one who has been disgraced, one who is in despair. And yet David, in the midst of all of his disgrace, says, you, O Lord, have lifted up my head. In other words, you, O Lord, you have removed my shame, even as I'm in the midst of exile. You are my delight. You are my countenance. Psalm 27, you lift my head over my enemies. It's an image of triumph. Psalm 9, you lift my head from the gates of death. The image of one who is drowning being crushed under the waves. You, O Lord, have lifted up my head. You will not let me see destruction. Salvation has come from Zion. David may be afflicted, but he has not been deserted. Though exiled from Zion, he has not been abandoned by the God of Zion. So David cries out, verse 4, I cried out to the Lord, and he answered me where? from where? from his holy hill. The Lord still hears despite how far David is from the ark, the temple, or the tabernacle at this point, I should say, the dwelling place of God. A false king sits on the throne in Jerusalem, and yet the Lord has not fallen off of his throne. The kingdom appears in tatters, but it will not totter. It is a kingdom that will not be shaken or overthrown. David cries out, save me or I die. My enemies, my foes, my own flesh and blood say that you will not deliver me. Some have in fact said it is the, the Lord will not deliver you because you have brought this on yourself. David admits that he is in fact guilty of past sins. That's the context we see in 1 Samuel 16. David says, perhaps this is my own doing. This is my own fault. And yet, nevertheless, he has the confidence to call out for salvation to the Lord. What an encouragement that is for us, even when we suffer the consequences of our own sin, to know that we have a faithful and merciful Father who, though He may be disciplining us through uh, particular trials and situations, that He will not abandon us. David cries out, and confidence. Here we find that faith, the nature of faith, it's not stoic. This is not a grin and bear it religion. Here is the picture of a man crying out to God, clinging to God's promises and hopes that the Lord will answer what he has promised, that his kingdom would come and his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. The book of Hebrews invites us to that same desperate faith, to draw near before the throne of grace in confidence that we might find mercy on account of our own sin, but also strength and grace to persevere through the many sufferings and afflictions that we undergo, even when that suffering is because of our own sinfulness, where we have to endure discipline as sons, as Hebrews 12 reminds us. See, faith here is what's being brought into view, and it is faith, uh, that faith is that victory, as 1 John tells us, that overcomes the world, because it looks beyond our present circumstances towards God's unshakable and unalterable promises. 
as we are reminded that the church is Christ's kingdom. And though the church, visible throughout the world, has been beset by so many problems, some things simply by virtue that the church is hated by the world, but sometimes the church suffering because of her own sin. Though beset by schism and heresy, overrun by rebels and usurpers, we find that these rebels are no match for Christ who rules from heaven. And so we see David's own response in the midst of danger. As he cries out to the Lord, we see the fruit of his trust in God. One particular aspect that is brought out here, and again, when we look at Psalm 4 next month, is a good night's rest. Look at verses 5 to 8. Calvin says that we have before us a man who has been tossed about in the merciless waves of anxiety. David's own son had done this to him. There have been years of planning this rebellion all under David's nose. And though Absalom has planned this for years, David has had no clue. And so the fact that this happens in the blink of an eye has everything turned upside down. How disorienting this would be for David. And admittedly, both David and Absalom are gross sinners. The book of First and Second Samuel does not hide the fact of the sinfulness of either. And yet there is one thing that distinguishes David from Absalom. David still fears the Lord. Absalom doesn't. David has confessed his sin. You remember Psalm 51 is David's own response to his sin regarding Bathsheba and the incident with Uriah. The Lord didn't cancel David. The Lord pardoned David. And though David now has to live with the consequences of his actions, he continues to put his hope in the Lord and not in his own righteousness. See here that David does not say salvation belongs to my own hand, my own ingenuity, my own strength in numbers. Again, you read 2 Samuel 15 and 16, there are a number of people who come to David and say, we're ready to join you. And David says, stay where you are. Don't come with me. Not that David doesn't care about them, but he says, look out for yourselves. Watch out for your own safety. David clearly is not trying to build up a counter-army at the moment. Rather, David puts his hope in the Lord as he says here, salvation is holy of the Lord. It is of none other. It is of none else. And so David can say with confidence, because of his trust in the Lord, the Lord who has been faithful to him all the days of his life, he says, I lay down and I slept. Though here he is not speaking of the sleep of death, because here he says, I lay down and slept, and what? And I woke again. I woke up, and it turns out that the Lord had sustained me. He gave me rest. The enemy has not tracked me down in my sleep. Absalom has no regard for the Lord. He has used religion and the pilgrimage as a pretense to mask his own rebellious heart. He has cloaked his mutiny in the name of justice and truth. The entire reason he was able to steal the hearts of the people is in the name of justice. And yet, even in the midst of this massive schism, and as heartbroken as David is over his own son's treachery, 
David finds that he is able to rest. That he has cast his anxieties on the Lord because he knows that the Lord cares for him. This morning we spoke of the fear of the Lord. Proverbs speaks of it not only as the beginning of wisdom, but as something that brings true and everlasting rest. Listen to Proverbs chapter 3. If you lie down, you will not be afraid. When you lie down, your sleep will be sweet, for terror will come suddenly upon the wicked. But the Lord will be your confidence, and He will keep you from entrapment. Think of what Christ Himself says. Do not be anxious. Don't fret about tomorrow. Tomorrow's going to have its own set of worries. Rather, what are you to do? You're to seek first what? The kingdom. That's one of these operating uh, uh, paradigms that we have to have when we read the Psalms is that these are Psalms as they relate to the kingdom of God. And in Psalm 3, we see the kingdom has been rent asunder and yet it has not been overthrown. And David sits sure on this promise that the Lord will continue to reign and that the Lord will place on the throne a king who will establish justice in the land. And Christ will not allow his church to be overrun or overthrown, as Christ is David's greater son, the one whom the Lord had promised that he would place on the throne and he would reign from everlasting to everlasting, so that we can now rest confidently. Despite the circumstances, this church as a congregation or this church that we experience globally face, that the Lord will give His enemies, His true enemies, not our enemies according to the flesh, but the Lord will give His true enemies the right hook and will shatter their jaw. In other words, the Lord will be our victor in the arena. He's the one who goes to fight for his people. So when the church is beset with trouble and tribulation, schism and heresy, what is it that we are to do? We find here that our only source of refuge is still found in one place, in one place alone. It is not in our own ingenuity. It is not in our own resources. It is by putting our hope in the Lord Jesus Christ, for He is the true King of the unshakable kingdom of God. Calvin, reflecting on the psalm, says that certainly the only remedy for our fears is to cast upon Him, to cast upon the Lord all of our cares and all of our troubles. Because we find here that the psalm is not just David's psalm. As if we can sing this psalm as a nice historical relic that was true for David and yet not true for us. I want you to notice how the psalm ends and how the people of God have been incorporated into this psalm as David proclaims and and asks the Lord, may your blessing be upon your people. As we saw in Psalm 1 and 2, the introduction to the Psalter, how does the blessing of the Lord come upon His people? The blessing of the Lord falls upon His people by establishing His King on Zion's hill. 
Remember Psalm 2, this is the time of God's laughter as the nations gather around the kingdom of Christ. The Lord from heaven laughs and says, I have set my son, my king on Zion, and he will not be overthrown. Here we have a reminder of that great blessing, that great promise that God has established a firm and certain kingdom with a righteous king who now reigns on the throne, the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, our great hope, according to Hebrews, is not in a future enthronement of Christ. Hebrews 1.1 begins in many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers formerly by the prophets, but in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, who has now taken His seat at the right hand of the majesty on high. That Christ's coronation day was the day of His ascension into heaven. That Christ reigns now, and that period between the first and second advent of the Messiah is the time of God's laughter. That time where God's enemies are now being made his footstool. Where Christ comes in triumph through the ministry of the gospel, either subjecting us to himself in grace, delivering us from the kingdom of darkness, or trampling upon his and our enemies as the kingdom of Christ continues to advance to cover the face of the earth. The fact remains that the people are not safe so long as there is injustice on the throne. And so David could rest with confidence that Absalom could not sit on the throne forever because Absalom has acted unjustly. Absalom is not the promised king. The great news of the gospel we find, particularly in the gospel of Matthew, is that the king has returned. The king has come. That's why Matthew 1 opens up with the genealogy of a fractured line from Abraham to David, from David to the Babylonian captivity. And yet no king sits on the throne. And yet right after the genealogy, we're given what? The story of the birth of Christ. The one who the wise men come and say, this is the true Messiah. This is the true King of kings. I would imagine Christ himself as he grows up hearing this psalm in, 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 in Sabbath worship. Growing up, learning the Psalter with his family. And as he comes to the psalm, he hears, uh, he hears of his great, 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 great grandfather David saying, how many are my foes? And how the Lord himself could see that and pray that as his own. How many were Christ's foes? The world hated him. Herod, puppet king of Palestine, and Pilate, the governor of Judea, conspire against the king of the Jews. Christ's own friends desert him. Judas betrays him. The Romans crucified him. The crowds mocked him. The father had forsaken him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us that God considered Christ who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of Christ, so that the blessing of God may fall upon His people. Christ was subjugated by His enemies. He was crucified and He was killed, though He had, in fact, done nothing wrong. 
Unlike David, his great-great-grandfather who had done something wrong. And yet, through the crucifixion, the death of Christ, salvation has come. And now the resurrection and ascension marks Christ's own coronation as king in power where he rules over all. What is it that Christ says at the end of Matthew? As he has risen on high prior to his ascension, he says, all authority, not just on earth, but also in heaven, has been given to me. So that now is the time of God's laughter. Now it is the Lord who mocks his own foes and tramples them under his feet. And now that Christ's reign is secure, you too can lay down and rest. You too can find rest for weary souls in the midst of suffering and affliction. Because we are given the great promise that the shepherd and keeper of Israel will neither slumber nor sleep in watching over you. That he will not allow the gates of hell to prevail over his church, not even this church, not even this congregation, this little outpost of the kingdom of Christ. The foes of Christ's church throughout the world might look on the church and say, is there no salvation for you? You have brought this upon yourself. Is there no salvation? I actually think the better question is, is there salvation in no other? For there is no salvation in anyone but the Lord Jesus Christ. Because it is by Him and His promises that our deliverance is sure. And so as He beckons us to call out to Him for salvation, He beckons us to do so to deliver us not only from sin, but from all the enemies that befall Christ's kingdom and His church throughout the world. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we do thank you for your word, for the great hope found in the psalm. Though the, the enemies of Christ's church may mock us, asking where salvation is to be found, we profess and confess with the rest of the church throughout the world that salvation is none other but the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we ask that you would give us the confidence to rest in you, that we would not be overrun by our own anxieties, that we would rest easy knowing that we have a king who cannot fall off of his throne. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.